Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, Harvest KL, it's good to uh, be able to have the privilege to bring the Word of God to you this morning again. Um, I, we look forward to the time when we can meet face-to-face uh, in person, worshipping together uh, on location. But for now, uh, let me just bring you greetings from CDPC uh, Subang. And, uh, and we are right now um, also you know, casting our, our worship service through YouTube and a small group of uh, crew and preacher is at church on Sunday to bring the bring the, the mute song and worship in song as well as the sermon uh, live from location, but a very small crew. Again, we don't know how long that's going to last, right? But I understand that a couple of weeks ago you uh, had uh, a sermon on James chapter 1. Uh, for the sake of continu- continuity, I, I will take uh, James chapter 2 today, James chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. Uh, and so let me read uh, our text before us today, James chapter 2, verse 1 to 13, reading from the ESV. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among them yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not the rich, the ones who oppress you? Sorry, are not the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme and the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Our Father, we thank you this morning that uh, your word is alive and true and able to transform our hearts. And so this morning we ask for your help, Lord, that we may glean and understand uh, your word as it speaks to us. Do a work in our lives, in our hearts this morning uh, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1945, Wilhelm Hamelmann uh, in Blockland, Germany, uh, he was 43 years old then, lived in an estate and had, uh, on the evening of 20th November 1945, uh, he had his wife, his mother-in-law, his parents-in-law, 
his wife Margaret, his children, his three children, Ruth, his four children, Ruth, Martha, Lishan, and Willie. And then he had a, a guest, Beta Gerdes, and the maid, Meta Howell. In total, 13 people had just finished their supper and was retiring for the evening. Shortly before midnight, Wilhelm heard noises down in the, in the living room, and so he went down to look only to be surprised by nine intruders, burglars, uh, who were from Poland, and these intruders uh, were, spoke good German. They pointed the gun to, the grand, to, to Wilhelm and, said, uh, and forced him into, uh, to wake everybody up. And they rummaged through, uh, they cut the telephone line, bl- blacked out the windows with pillows, rummaged through cardboards, cupboards, sorry, drawers and chests, stealing clothing, valuables, jewelries, heaping up their spoils. Then the ringleader ordered Wilhelm and the others to go down to the cellar. There they loaded their pistols and began shooting each one. They pointed the gun, the ringleader loaded the gun and pointed it at Wilhelm to aim at his head but missed and entered his chest, his lungs, slumped to the ground. Everyone else was shot dead. On the 20th November 1945, Wilhelm, his entire family, including his four children, were killed on their farm in Blockland. Sorry, Wilhelm's maternal grandfather and the entire family and four children were killed in the farm in Blockland, outskirts of Bremen. Years later, uh, Wilhelm remarried and and had a second family. Uh, From there came Lily Hamelman, who wrote uh, these stories of her grandfather uh, account in 1945. But the ringleader, Zygmunt, was convicted and four other men were condemned to death by firing squad. Uh, A further three received life sentences and another was given 40 years in prison. A ninth man was arrested in Munich several months later and also sentenced to life imprisonment. On 29th April 1967, some 22 years later, Wilhelm Hammerman wrote to the US ambassador requesting that the two men be pardoned. I've now visited Godlewski in Fulsbuttel Penitentiary and told him I have forgiven him. Should he be pardoned, I hope to take him in and employ him as a janitor in a private old people's home that I own, said Wilhelm. As the man most affected by the attack, I ask you, Your Excellency, for mercy for a man who did wrong in the confusion of an unprecedented time and who regrets. He has served 21 years and that's a very long time. Hate will only ever sow hate and therefore... It is time to stop hating once and for all, end quote. His appeals were heard in December 1968. Oboza was released on probation and housed in Belfield, where Wilhelm visited him several times. Godlewski uh, was also pardoned in March 1969 and initially taken to the home near Hagen, but Mr. Wilhelm, uh, an elder at the church at Bremen at that time, a deeply religious man, uh, took Godlewski in and hired him uh, to, to work in his retirement home. The question is this. As I read through this story written by Wilhelm's granddaughter, Lily Hammerman, was this, that what makes a man who has gone through such a horrific experience not hold any bitterness, but lives his life in such a way that offers mercy to the people who have caused him so much pain and harm? I cannot comprehend this, really. It's a mystery, isn't it? That a man would not seek vengeance, 
to the people who caused him so much harm, who killed his entire family. It's a mystery. It's out of this world. It's not of man. Indeed, it's a mystery. And James here in this chapter speaks about this in our text this morning. And the last sentence, mercy triumphs over judgment. It is the mercy of God that triumphs judgment. And this, mo- this morning, that is the uh, theme, this, the title of my sermon, Mercy Triumphs Over Judgment. Now, just to give you a background, the book of James, if, if it wasn't handled two weeks ago, but James contends that genuine faith will produce authentic deeds. Genuine faith will produce authentic deeds. Good works will follow the life of a regenerate heart. James calls this in chapter 1 religion that is pure and undefiled. Pure and undefiled uh, before God. And that is a, uh, a God the Father. And that is one that visits and cares for orphans, widows in their, in, during lockdown, during MCO, feeding and caring for the poor. Here in chapter 2, we'll deal with one who does not show partiality between the rich and the poor. In chapter 3, James will talk about controlling the tongue. And chapter 4, warning against worldliness. This is, what, this is what a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father looks like. In other words, when the Spirit of God comes upon you and your heart is, regen- is, is regenerate and, and, it's, and it's being transformed uh, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, you cannot help but see the fruits of that conversion. Matthew chapter 7 says, beware of false prophets. The fact that you have to beware means that uh, it's a real deal. That there can be and will be real, uh, prophets, false prophets that are in and among us. They come into sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. How would you know them? How would you be able to discern these ravenous wolves? Verse 16 of chapter 7, Matthew says, By their fruit you will recognize them. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Beware of false prophets. By their fruit, you will recognize them. By their fruit, you will recognize them. You can recognize a Christian, therefore, by his actions. I would go further to say you can be, cer- you can be uncertain of a person's faith by his actions. If I have no desire or interest in God's word, no desire in, in, uh, to change and to be more like Christ, if my life is as it goes from year to year is not being transformed by the by the gospel, no compassion or action for the poor and, and the widows and the orphans and the marginalized, then I have to ask myself, am I a true believer in Christ? Do I know the gospel of Jesus Christ and has it really made a difference in my life? This is what James is moving us to. That genuine faith will produce authentic deeds. The passage before us in which James highlights this in chapter uh, is, is the sin of partiality. To discern whether your religion is true is do you, do you have the sin of partiality? Do you display the sin of partiality? This is probably an issue with the new believers then and James addresses it here in his letter. And this morning we're going to look at four areas. Number one, what is the sin of partiality? James uh, introduces it to us and explains what is the sin of partiality. Number two, why is the sin of partiality so bad? 
Number three, how do you deal with the sin of partiality? And number four, who receives mercy for the sin of partiality? So it's, it's the um, four wise men uh, of inquisition. What is the sin of partiality? Why is the sin of partiality so bad? How do you deal with the sin of partiality? And who receives mercy for the sin of partiality? Number one, what is the sin of partiality? Well, it is, it is, let me just say this, that it's untenable that you would be a Christian, uh, a person who holds the, to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and show partiality. It's just, it's just like water and oil. It just cannot merge. It cannot come together. You cannot. They just don't exist together. And we will see why. But what is the sin of partiality? First of all, let's look at this that James illustrates for us and this is what it looks like. It is an example of showing partiality to uh, the ones who are wealthy or rich. Two types of people who enter our assembly, our congregation every morning. uh, The rich and the poor. And you can tell maybe by their dressing. Uh, The rich, you look at, has gold fingers. That means they have rings. Uh, the poor may be wearing their Sunday best, but still shabby, no doubt. Uh, and you have observed their social standing by their dressing. And perhaps in your heart, you have made a distinction between the two. For one, you will treat different than the other based on their value to you. And you see, this happens traditionally in the synagogue, and that's why James brings it up. There were different seating arrangements. There were like the dress circle seats, or the floor seats, or the balcony seats right at the back. You know, when I go to a play, uh, back in those days when we could travel, sometimes to the UK or London, you could go to a nice uh, 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 play. And, and because it's so expensive, you get to see that the balcony seats right at the back and the people are really small. Uh, but it is like that in the synagogue. There are different, cate- different seatings uh, based upon your view and how good your view is. Uh, to the good place for the, uh, the center, unobstructed view. Then you say to the poor man, you stand over there behind that column, or you sit down there at the footstool, uh, Moses' seat, where it's not so comfortable. In your mind, because then one is worth more than the other. And that decision is based upon a person's dressing, uh, with the assumption that dressing well shows riches, and a person who is shabby may, may be one who is poor or in poverty, if you've made a judgment. This is true not only, uh, this is particularly true perhaps in Malaysia, uh, not only in social standing, but, but relevant to us, to those who have racial differences. Um, could it be that in your mind you have made a distinction that one race is more capable than another, one race is more trustworthy than the other. One race is more efficient than another uh, and therefore more value to you as a person. You see, when under threat, our true selves come out and perhaps this is why we have seen such racist behavior in, in Melbourne or Sydney or, or the United States or London where, where Orientals thinking that they are Chinese are being beaten because they think that they carry the COVID-19 virus. Or, or even in China where Africans are being are threatened and, and, uh, because they are people that are afraid. 
or perhaps we show partiality not only in, in uh, people's social standing or in their race, but in their vocation. In different vocations, of course, you would say you are not biased towards a contractor or, or a job that doesn't pay so well. But what happens? What happens? Uh, would you say if your son or your daughter uh, comes to you and say he or she doesn't want to become a doctor or a professional? Instead, he wants to be an artist or a painter or a policeman or worse still, a pastor <laughs> or a missionary. You say, how are you going to feed yourself? Right? Or, or, or your daughter who says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to marry a, a pastor or a poor pastor. And you think, you're going to be hungry and starving. <laughs> how would you feel? And you are sure or not, is this, are you sure you want to do this? How to feed your family, right? We're guilty of all of this. We live in a pluralistic society and, and don't we all have certain biases towards certain races? Never mind the stereotypes of perhaps one culture behaves a certain way, but, but when you begin to show favoritism or preference of one over the other because of their wealth or their, or their uh, race or their social status or their vocation, then you have committed the sin of partiality. Especially if you think what value is this person and you treat them differently because they are value to me in this way, then we have committed the sin of partiality. And it means treating someone according to what you think they deserve based on their usefulness to you or to society. Not according to their identity in the image of God. Number two, why is the sin of partiality so bad? Why is the sin of partiality so bad? Well, because that, that is not who our God is. And we worship idols when we do this. In dealing with riches or race or vocation, God does not show partiality. Romans 2.11 says, But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good first for the Jew, then for the Greek, for God does not show partiality. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. God does not show partiality, and neither should we. Verse 1 specifically says, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If we hold to this faith in Christ, the Lord of glory, then there is no way that light and darkness can merge oil and water, partiality and Christ. Just, it's untenable. It just doesn't come together. It's just two different values. And there are at least two hard idols as to the origin of the sin of partiality. Number one, human glory or affirmation. Number two, security and comfort. And that is why we would give preference to the rich or the famous because we seek human glory and affirmation. Think about it. When we met someone famous like Mahate or, or in the Christian world, uh, John Piper or Tim Keller, uh, won't you want to take a selfie with him and then post it on Facebook? Sure, that's, that's a natural thing to do. I, I would do that too. Uh, it's natural. But it affirms who we are, that we know someone rich or we know someone famous, an important person. Uh, it gives us a sense of credibility that they would want to know and mingle with us, that, or we know them, or we chanced upon them. Or the fact that we know someone important 
uh, our rage affirms us, doesn't it? Affirms us. Our insecurities also drive us to show partiality to those who could make us safer. This is the other idol, security and comfort. However, if you know Christ as the Lord of glory, if you trust him as the one who is gloriously strong and gloriously wise and gloriously loving, then you won't be controlled by this craving for human glory or by this fear that uses partiality to be safe. Christ will indeed be your glory. All the glory you need and Christ will be your security. Number two, partiality to the rich contradicts God's heart because he has chosen many poor to himself. Look at verse 5 of James. Verse 5 says that, um, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? You see, God has a special place for those who are poor. And so you and I, uh, we cannot marginalize the poor or treat them any different. In fact, it's easier for the poor to enter the kingdom of God, it says. And they're very much more dependent upon God than many of the rich who have more in their, more, have a lot of more distractions in their life. So, what's, so that's what James is saying, that the poor in this world is actually rich spiritually and many are, the, are heirs of the kingdom. But don't stop there. God has actually promised all those to, to the one who loves him, regardless of whether you're rich or poor. God shows no partiality, remember? You see that at the end of verse 5. The third reason why this is untenable, why, why God would, would not, uh, why it's untenable to be partial, is that number three, partiality backfires and gets us in trouble. It backfires, verse 6. It says, you put your hope in the rich man or, or the one with loads of connection and you give preference to him, but he will let you down. He will let you down because it's contractual, because their relationship is contractual. He only does so much for you because you have done so much for him. In the end, James says, it's not the rich who drag you to court and sue you because the relationship is contractual. If you don't meet up to that, your end of the bargain, he will sue you. The rich man comes to church for a blessing. The rich may give to the church so that they can be blessed. But this is a contractual relationship. When things go wrong or they don't get what they want, you may get a court case as you see in many churches today. So let's not put our hope even on on those who are wealthy or treat them any partial, show partiality because this is not the way God is. God shows no partiality. The third point of my sermon is how do you deal with the sin of partiality? How, how do you deal with the sin of partiality? Short answer, by the gospel. By the gospel. And that's what James leads us to. By the gospel. The law of liberty, he says, he calls it the law of liberty. Not the law that condemns, but the law that sets you free. So he's, he's bringing about two different laws, two different sets of laws that we can live in. And Galatians 5.13 clearly says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers, the law of liberty. What Paul calls in Romans 7.6, But now we are released from the law, having died, so that that which held us captive, the old way of the law, the law that condemns us, We are set free from that so that we now serve the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, but the new way of the Spirit, the law of liberty, the law that's in our hearts, 
not out there to condemn us, but the law that is in our hearts. The law of liberty, verse 12. Therefore, do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Do not use this as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another. Let me unpack that. Verse 8 says, Everyone knows that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Right? James says, you know that if you can fulfill this commandment, you are doing well. You have obeyed all ten commandments because these two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. All these two hang. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. But hang on. You also know that if you break just one of the commandments, you actually break the whole law. If you break just one of these commandments, you actually break the whole law. Right? And so, you say how? You say how? Well, um, well, it's, it's, it's um, by breaking any of the laws, any of the laws, any of the other eight laws, you automatically break the two most important law, which is loving God and loving your neighbor. Because when you, when you, he says here, when you are commit adultery or when you commit murder, you have not loved God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you've definitely are. Uh, wronged your neighbor. And so, boy, have we all done that? Have we murder in our hearts when we call a brother Raka, you fool? We haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves, have we? Not always, at least. And so if we broke one part of the law, we've broken the law, haven't we? And what does God call a lawbreaker? What does here James call a lawbreaker? Verse 11. For he, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, what are you? You have become a transgressor of the law. You are a transgressor. You are a violator. You are a lawbreaker. And what's the punishment for sin? Yep, you got it. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. That is what we all deserve death because you and I are lawbreakers, we are transgressors, we are violators. Now, I heard if you break the MCO today, if you break the SOPs, the ever-shifting SOP, uh, these days you're caught and it's not a fine anymore, it's automatically go to the courthouse and get uh, charged and sentenced, right, and uh, spend a day in jail or something. Well, according to the Bible, as a transgressor of the law, of God, breaking the Ten Commandments, you don't get a warning. You don't get a warning to say, try harder. You don't even get a fine. You get the death penalty. And that's what we all deserve. But who? Who? You. Yes, you. You in verse 1. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith of the Lord Jesus. This is addressed to you. You who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, 
So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, um, as I read this, I, I, you know, if you look from verse 10 to verse 11, or sorry, verse 11 to verse 12, there seems to be a bit of a, a mis, mismatch, right? And I think partly because if you look at it this way, and I, I, I think this is very uh, a good way to look at it, is that if you, if you think that verse 12 is another paragraph, then it makes more sense. But if you go from verse 11 to verse 12, it, it, there is a disjointment there. Because he says, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery. Uh, but if you do, you are a transgressor. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. Uh, there's a bit of a disjointment. But if you take verse 1 and verse 12 as the two sandwich, the two slices of bread, and everything in between is the uh, argument, is the examples, uh, then it makes sense. All right. So let me try this. I read verse 1, and then I read verse 12, and see if you get it. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For judge, uh, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so everything in between verse 2 and verse 10 is an argument that backs up this point that you have been called, that you have been, uh, you uh, that hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, and you have received this gospel of Jesus Christ. You hold this faith that has come to you. So now, so now, speak and act as, as one who, uh, those who are judged not under, the, not under the law that lead to death, but the law of liberty that you have received in Christ. Right? So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. That means you need to be doers of the word. Speak and do as those who have been redeemed and have been shown the mercy of God. You see, you see for the redeemed, the ones who have their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, for them, for you, mercy triumphs over judgment. You have received such mercy. You who deserve the death penalty for being transgressors, for being violators, for being uh, lawbreakers, was dealt the hand of mercy. And I think Paul in Ephesians 2 says it well, and, and I use that to sum it up. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why? For what reason did God choose you and call you to, for, to, to this faith and given you the gospel of Jesus Christ? To what purpose? Verse 7 of Ephesians. In order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? To do good works. For we are God's handiwork, 
For what purpose? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has chosen us, called us out of darkness into His wondrous light and, gave, and showed us mercy. Not that we deserve this, but no, that we did not deserve this, but He called us out of that as His handiwork, His beautiful handiwork created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. So speak and so act as the one who has been shown great mercy and grace. How? How? That leads us to our fourth point. How do we uh, show mercy? How do we, uh, how or who receives mercy for this sin of partiality? Well, you and I. But how do we do that? How do we show, uh, show mercy? By showing mercy and grace to others. By not sizing up people according to their riches or race or vocation. By treating people, uh, do not treat people differently and being partial. And you can only do this as one who has received and experienced the rich mercy of God. The very handiwork of God created and made a life in Christ Jesus. It is the love of Christ that compels us, isn't it? That drives us, that motivates us to love others like Christ loves us. How do you show a religion that is pure and undefiled in James chapter 1? How do you show the beauty of the gospel that you have received? By speaking and acting as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, not as one condemned, but as one who has been shown great mercy. In other words, every day we wake up and we are just astounded and amazed by this gospel that we have received, this mercy that has come to us. And how do we live? We live in showing mercy to others, in being gracious to others, overflowing in good works. This is, how, this is the way we reflect Christ and His beautiful gospel. You know, that I, I love that in 1 John 3, 1, it says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love? That word, what kind of love, is that what out of this world, crazy, mad love the Father has given to us. It's an out of this world kind of love. It's not a natural love that we understand. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. Something we totally do not deserve, but yet God has given this this uh, position to us as children of God. And so we can call him Abba, Father. And so we are. In his book, Wilhelm Hammelman described how he prayed on the night of the murder and was granted peace and strength. He details his thoughts as he left the cellar. He said this, let me, let me just in closing quote Wilhelm Hammelman in his book and quote, he says, what kind of God allows such a thing to happen? How can you reconcile this with love thy enemies? When people have caused you immeasurable suffering, you have to demand vengeance. He adds, it became immediately apparent to me that the enemy had struck at my senses of reason. And if I were to lose this battle, my whole self would be lost. 
and then something that many will find incomprehensible. The Lord granted me love directly, His love. For these poor people seduced by Satan, His mercy was my mercy. His forgiveness was my forgiveness. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Only God can do this in our hearts. It is not the law that condemns us, but the law of liberty that is in our hearts. Christ who showed us mercy and made us alive in Him to do good works for Him. This is how mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning and I pray for my brothers and sisters here at Harvest Care, Lord, that you may stir up in their hearts even during this dark and difficult time that we live in called the pandemic. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that they may uh, be people with genuine faith that produce and, and, and overflow with authentic deeds because the gospel of grace has landed on their hearts. Because they understand, Lord, that mercy triumphs judgment. And they have come to receive this rich, rich, abundant, lavish grace of God. Lord, thank you. Thank you that the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, has come to us. And we pray, Lord, that the gospel will change and transform us to be more like you. And as we are changed and transformed, Lord, we know that out of the overflowing of our lives will come good works in loving those around us, in showing mercy to those around us, in showing grace to those around us. Lord, forgive us for the times, for the many times that we show partiality when we look upon a person because he's rich or he's poor and judge a person because of his vocation or because of his race, Lord, forgive us that we may be people uh, who have received such mercy from you and therefore show mercy and grace to others. And so, Lord, I pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you again for inviting me. I hope to see you again soon. God bless.